Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Take Notes are Courtney Bonnet and producer Stella Mazgawa to talk about how they wrote, recorded and produced the album Things Take Time, Take Time. Courtney Barnett is a singer and songwriter from Melbourne, Australia. Having grown up listening to American alternative rock and grunge, as a teenager, Courtney discovered Australian singer-songwriters Darren Hanlon and Paul Kelly, who inspired her to start writing songs of her own. In 2012, following several years as a member of various Melbourne grunge bands, she released her debut EP, I've Got a Friend Called Emily Ferris, on her own label, Milk Records. A second EP followed, and the two were compiled into the double EP, A Sea of Split Peas, on the label, Marathon Artists. Critical acclaim and global touring followed, leading to her much-anticipated debut album, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit, produced by Burke Reed as well as developing somewhat of a cult following and ranking as one of the best albums of 2015 in numerous publications, the album received eight nominations at the 2015 Australian ARIA Awards, as well as nominations at the Brits and Grammys. Courtney's next two albums, including a collaboration record with singer-songwriter Kurt Vile, were each met with equal acclaim, with 2018's Tell Me How You Really Feel gaining particular attention for Courtney's more subdued musical style in comparison to previous releases. Released in November 2021, her latest offering, Things Take Time, Take Time, produced by Stella Mazgawa, dives deep into Courtney's own psyche, exploring topics of love, renewal, healing and self-discovery. Stella Mazgawa is an Australian producer and drummer. Raised by musical parents, Stella began to play drums aged 13. Following years of performing with bands across Australia, including pop rock band Mink, she formed a connection with Flea of Red Hot Chili Peppers, who suggested she move to Los Angeles. While earning a living taking on session gigs, she befriended members of the band Warpaint and in 2009 joined them as a permanent member. Their debut album The Fool was released in October 2010 on Rough Trade Records, co-produced by Tom Biller. Beginning to experiment with their writing process, in 2013 Warpaint began production on their second album, working alongside legendary producer Flood. Inspired by Flood's approach to music, Stella began to take on more production roles herself, getting her first full production credit with the band Cryo Geezer. While continuing to release and perform with Warpaint, her sought-after skills as a drummer have led to her playing on records by many different artists, including St. Vincent, Sharon Van Etten and Kurt Vile. Back in Australia throughout the pandemic, Stella and Courtney's friendship blossomed into a musical partnership, leading to Stella taking on the production role for Courtney's new album. Today, I'm at home in Borden, South London, and Courtney and Stella join me from Melbourne, Australia. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Ray Street. In the morning I'm slow I drag a chair over to the window And I watch what's going on The garbage truck tiptoes along the road Light a candle for the suffering Send my best 
It is Ray Street by Courtney Barnett from the album Things Take Time, Take Time. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm connected online with Courtney and also Stella Musgawa. Hello, how are you? Hello. Very well. Very well. (laughs) It's good to see you both. So I'm peering into your world in Melbourne. Um, This is a home studio setup, I think. What has brought you into the same room as opposed to just to talk to me? Well, Stella usually lives in America. Yep. And I'm a classic uh, COVID casualty coming back to my my birth town of Sydney last year. And yeah, Courtney and I have been working together since the end of 2020 on this album that we'll be deconstructing. And yeah, I'm still in Melbourne. Right. So in a way, COVID played into your hands in that it, it trapped Stella in Australia, Courtney. So you got to have a all to yourself to work on your new record. Exactly. Courtney actually started the uh, <laughs> pandemic for this sole purpose, uh, lesser known fact, but a fact indeed. <laughs> so you didn't start the record till late 2020. So were you stockpiling songs during the previous time or had there been a plan, a long-term plan to work with Stella? Because, you know, with the third record, Courtney, you know, were you trying to change things up, do something differently? Pretty much I had been working on songs and then in March 2020 I finished a solo tour in America and I came back to Melbourne and that was when Melbourne went into lockdown and it was a very kind of quiet time. So I really started just working on songs all day, every day and um, Stella came back to Australia at the same time and we were just kind of communicating. I was sharing some of my new songs with her and we ended up working together because we worked yeah. together years ago with on the Kurt Vile album. And then right. I had kind of secretly been wanting to work on another project again since then. So I think that was 2017, 16. Yeah, yeah. So you were kind of exchanging these song ideas with Stella just as a, a friend or with the idea that you'd lure her into your world and make her think, you know what, I really need to work on these songs. Well, I think in hindsight it was kind of, yeah, I realised that like I I would send her songs and I kind of wanted to get her opinion because I I definitely kind of respect Stella's musical taste and opinion and advice. and um, But then, yeah, I realised that I started kind of asking her advice for producers and engineers and studios and I think it was a bit of a roundabout way maybe without me realising of kind of asking her to work with me, but in a very, um, like, not straightforward way. Yeah. It was so <laughs> yeah. um, kind of, it was so abstract that I was convinced that she had genuinely overshot the idea or not even really kind of considered working with me because she was asking me, she was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of looking for a producer, hopefully someone who's a friend, who's someone who's really into drum machines and synths and We were FaceTiming and I was sitting in a studio that I'd built and I was just surrounded by drum machines and synths and it's all I ever really talk about. And I just thought, God, I just feel so weird podcasting myself, so to speak, and offering my services because it's obvious that she, I mean, if she wanted to work with me, she knows that I'm interested in those things. So, yeah, it was so roundabout that I genuinely didn't think that there would be an offer to work together. We got there. We got there in the end. Quite a journey. Courtney, were you 
aware of what you were doing or were you um, just being bashful about asking or, or were you thinking, no, well, what, who I really want to work with, uh, Stella, I, you know, what do you think about Rick Rubin? or what? what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's just that little part of me that's maybe in a lot of us that's like, that tells yourself that it's not possible. And I was like, oh, she wouldn't want to work with me. She She's doing other things and she sounds busy working on these other projects. And, and then I, at some point, got over it and <laughs> got the courage. <laughs> yeah. So luckily you were able to get through that hurdle and then talk constructively and, right, this is a thing. We are, we are doing this together. Yeah, exactly. And by then, you know, we'd been talking for months about music and sharing so many like I shared lots of demos back and forth and we and we shared lots of albums that we loved and it was kind of like long form pre-production. Mm. Yeah, and kind of I think some of the most valuable pre-production content is sharing music and kind of realizing where the the location of someone's taste is and what they're looking to do next and what excites them. And some of that can be brushed over when you're working quite quickly with someone in the studio. If you're getting straight in there and do you want to work together? Okay, we've got the studio booked on Thursday and you kind of pass over that really crucial connecting fibre of a musical relationship. And so we had, you know, nothing but time and, yeah, it really worked out. And I think it really, when we did actually get into the studio, all those things, that language was so established as musical collaborators, but also just knowing kind of the shorthand with you mm. and vice versa about what we were going for. And mm. that was really useful. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And maybe we can explore some of those inspirations during the course of our conversation today. Um, but the first song we're going to look at from the album is Turning Green. And I guess we should get stuck into it. So maybe we could hear the master of turning green so people get a picture of, of what the song sounds like and then, then we can pull it apart and put it back together again. Fantastic. Yep, no worries. So this is where we ended up, which we're very happy with. Very happy. Un understandably. <laughs> yeah. I think this is my favourite song on the album. Oh, really? Just going to throw right. it out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> throw it out there. Don't be shy. It's a funny one to start with, actually, but it's definitely sets itself apart from the other tracks on the record. It's our little Krautrock jam. Yeah. It has this lovely metoric groove, which is really held down by that bass playing. Yeah. And like the percussion, you know, I suppose sometimes a metoric groove might be concentrated on the on the drumming, mightn't it? But yes. this kind of has more playful percussive sounds. Um, yeah, absolutely. It. I mean, how did it start, Courtney? How did this song start? This song, it definitely started on acoustic guitar 
very kind of timid song in my um, lounge room. And maybe that's one, it's one of my favourites because the kind of journey of it is quite long-winded. Should we hear where it came from? Yeah. Yeah, do you want to hear? Yeah, yeah we yeah. do, definitely. Okay. Courtney is great and a brilliant archivist. Not many people know, but she keeps a lot of her voice memos and demos and things like that. So actually going through this process, I hadn't heard a lot of the way that these songs first started. It's my true passion, archiving, <laughs> actually. Um, this is what we've marked here as early demo. And when was this, Courtney? I believe this would have been after March 2020, somewhere 2020. This is straight from somewhere 2020. <laughs> and this is in your Melbourne flat? This is in the Ray Street flat. Yep. And it goes a little something like this. Obviously the lyrics are different. Yeah, so definitely more melody based than lyrical based. Yeah. Same chords though. Yeah. Here's the B section. The end. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of my songs do start like that. Like I kind of am mucking around on the guitar and I find a melody that I like and maybe one line or word or phrase, that one seemed to have no um, no words. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of mumbling. But I think that's also a part of um, songwriting that I love is I do that and I see what happens and sometimes this weird kind of subconscious um you know, sentences come out of your brain and it's actually, um, it can be very interesting. But, yeah, that's kind of how I build a lot of my songs, so the melody. And you can kind of hear me realising the melody as I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the next but, one you, the next voice memo we have is where Courtney's. It's a bit more figured out. Yeah, a little more refined lyrically and it's kind of where it's very much the, the finished structure of the song but just on acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. We'll play a little bit of that too. Much prettier. <laughs> Very relaxed feel. And are these just recorded on your phone, Courtney? Yeah, just the the um, voice memo on my yeah. phone. My favourite application. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a solid demo. It's really fun to go back and, and hear because I can kind of, when I listen to it, I can hear where my brain is getting excited when I figure out a melody or a line or the next bit. Yeah. And at what point in your mind did you start thinking about how the song would end up? 
because I mean, at this point, it can go in any direction, can't it? You know, how you flesh it out, or do you, you could keep it as simple as it is right there, or get a band in, rock it up, take it down mellow, make it a country song. <laughs> yeah. So many options. Yeah, well, I definitely, I was really excited by the time I kind of had the bones of this song. I just, the melody made me really happy. It just felt like such a kind of like upbeat, happy, fun song. And I could picture a kind of band and a jangly guitar. And it felt to me like it was going to be quite an easy one to come together. And then when we got in the studio, we tried exactly that. We tried like jangly guitar, drums, like straight ahead, drum beat and kind of um, summary vibe. And then it just didn't, we kind of did a, a whole take of it and it just didn't feel right. Or it just kind of sounded like The other version else. of it? Yeah, the yeah. first version we yeah, did. Yeah. And also I remember you saying you were concerned that it sounded quite a bit like another song. Oh, yeah. Of yours, or a few of your songs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> two in particular that had kind of like that. Similar, co- well, same, same chords. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, that was very concerning because I think I do that a lot as well. Like I fall into sit down with a guitar and play the same chord or say, uh, play the same kind of strumming pattern and so it's very easy for, for things to kind of blend into each other or for songs to kind of blend into each other. Um, but I didn't realise that until we had kind of spent a few hours in the studio tracking this first version of the song. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Okay. We'll play a little (laughs) snippet of um, what was then called Down the Street. Down the Street A. same tempo I can't tell yeah I can't tell it's definitely too slow isn't it feels like it needs to be bouncier it's real jangly yeah. it's fun yeah I think another one of your songs starts uh, with the same chord same feel yeah um what's it called can tomatoes oh, it's on my first EP Nice little melodic bassline. <laughs> so, who's playing on this track? That's uh, Stella and I. Just Stella the two was playing of you. the bass. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, was that one of the things that you want that you know change the personnel for the recording or change the whole process? Because it, it, definitely the whole album as a as a whole thing is less band based than your previous records. Yeah, definitely. Um, it kind of just ended up happening that way because we went to Sydney and um, found this studio in Sydney for a few days to record a few tracks in. And I think I just realised this the other day, I think that I kind of in a way maybe was trying to outsmart myself by convincing myself that I wasn't making an album, like going into the studio to make an album because I feel like sometimes that can stress me out. So I was like, no, I'm not making an album. I'm just going into the studio to do a few songs, which might end up on an album. Yeah. The album. 
mm. that I'm pretending doesn't pretending exist. not to make. Yeah, <laughs> pretending that you're not starting it. Yeah, and I think it was good for me. Everything was a little bit slower and more spread out. You know, we did a few days in December and then a few days in February, February. Yeah. <laughs> um, with lots of in between demoing and working on songs. So yeah, I basically for most tracks I played guitar. You played drums. We split bass duties mostly. I did some synths and samples and stuff and extra percussion and piano. Basically whoever had the better idea wins. (laughs) Who dares wins. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. I mean, it sounds nice and relaxed. And um, was it all going back to that same studio in Sydney or were you going to different places? Yeah, we we, the studio that we... um, started in in December it was just great we loved it there so we kind of we only booked four days or so was it more four days maybe initially I think we did five songs in four days yeah yeah and like I said you know I didn't book any more because um first of all I think a lot of the songs were only 90% finished so I um so I kind of I wasn't sure if I was ready to to go into the studio with them but then um yeah, we just liked it. So we, we asked them when the next available dates were and then there was Christmas, obviously, and all of that. So we waited a, a month and a half. Yeah, I think the next available studio time with those engineers, which was Simon Berkelman and Chloe Dad, at this place called Golden Retriever in Marrickville in Sydney. So did that mean, say, with uh, Down the Street A, that mm-hmm. after you'd put all the work into recording it, and then yep. had this realisation, oh, maybe that's not what I wanted to do with that song anyway. And maybe it does sound a bit too much like that other song I've got. And did that make that kind of a, a lighter decision to make? You know, it is easier to say, right, we're not happy with that. We're going to do something different. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, it was a good learning process for me because I think a few years ago I might... I might have been like, oh, all that work for nothing and we've, you know, wasted this time and got kind of down on myself about it. But now I just realise that it's part of the process and sometimes you have to spend a few hours going in the wrong direction to find the right version of the song. So, yeah, it's kind of, I think it was good for me and it's the first time really that I've gone into the studio with songs that are not completely finished maybe for that same reason just because I don't want to waste people's time and I don't want you know people to have to sit around listening to me figure things out and all all those things um but again I think it was good because it allowed that little bit of experimentation time and ideas and ideas going wrong and Mm. and going right I think it was good so how did you get then from down the street a to turning green was it something that you discussed or did you say, well, okay, let's try it again and just brought in different instruments, you know, what what happened? Mm. I think I was definitely like the guitar needs to go because yes. the guitar is what is making it sound like a few other songs to me. Mm. So we jumped on different instruments. Yep. You, I jumped on the whirly. Yeah. And you, you found a, a beat on the drum machine yeah we're kind of switching between old pre-programmable drum machines like um rhythm aces and and ace tones and stuff 
and my MPC, which just had all the old drum machine samples in them. So we kind of started, we started a lot of stuff actually on the album with just drum machines. So it's mm. just this kind of stuff, like this is just the MPC. I'm just leaving that running eternally, basically, <laughs> and establishing a tempo, feeling out, kind of tweaking it till it felt right to play along to or getting Courtney to sing the chorus and knowing that it felt like the right kind of starting point and then building from there. So how much live drums do we actually want once there's a rhythm that's established? Are we just going to replace it with live drums? Or And it kind of often felt good for that to be running, the drum machine to be running, and then doing more abstract things live. And that way we could, because there was just two of us, we had to kind of fill in a lot of gaps sonically when we were playing in the room together because with a full band, Mm. you know, you need little things like this or another tone or a drone or something like that to kind of thicken out the sound and make it more exciting and enticing to start playing something. So we often would just start with something like this. There was a whirly part, but I don't, we, we scrapped it. Mm. And that was kind of what became the bass line, which is like this one. This was originally played on a Wurlitzer. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think you were playing this while singing the song. And then I was kind of oh, playing, yeah. did I play bass? I can't even remember. Yeah. Basically, we just started, you know, we had a lot of things just running constantly. So there was that motoric energy while we were working it out. But then we got so attached to it. But I started putting um, weird little things like playing the brushes on the um, frame of the piano. So getting this kind of thing going, which just sounds like an annoying kind of insecty hi-hat <laughs> sound without playing the hi-hat. And then, obviously, I cannot resist doing just a normal crap rock thing. So trying to really play super tight with the drumming so it's it really does sound like the same organism. And then Courtney basically just sings through the first part and just keeps it really minimal. A lot of this is in the room live. We kept a lot of the scratch vocal takes. You can hear the whirly. Yep, ever so slightly. (laughs) That must be coming through my headphones into the vocal. That's home. So we had to kind of, when Courtney had certain sections of the song unwritten or yet to be written, she would just mumble through those bits and then we'd have to re-record that at home, which was really fun, actually. We did a lot of stuff in Courtney's kitchen to get the sound of, you know, this massive, beautiful studio. Um, It didn't really work to do it in a small room. Yeah, so basically it's that this very faint whirly line and then the drums and the bass at the beginning and these weird little percussion bits 
like this. Oh, my friend. Why don't you let go? That's all of us playing. Yeah. As well as, was it just you and I or maybe Chloe? Chloe. The assistant engineer. Yeah. In the end. And then you get... Really obnoxious Tom <laughs> overdubs, encouraged by Courtney. I kept trying to make those toms louder and louder, I yes. think. And this guitar solo, which basically just felt like, I mean, if you're going to hold off the whole song till you hear a guitar, it's got to be brilliant when it comes in. And I think it's some of my favourite guitar playing I've ever heard. <laughs> And that's basically Simon and myself manipulating a two-track tape machine. So instead of using any pedals, this is bone dry. Well, a bit of drive. But then the tape echo, which pitches and warps right. the tone. And is that as Courtney's playing? You're doing that at yes. the same time? Right. Yeah, and you could hear that while yeah. you were playing, so it was kind of egging you on. Yeah. These weird alien guitar sounds. That was really fun. And then it's a blend of two takes. So then you've got this one. And then it just goes into that one. I think we kept talking about Babies on Fire Mm. that right. as a reference, even though rhythmically it's not quite, I mean, it's pretty consistent and crowty, but that insane pleasure delay of a guitar solo that's that audacious, you know. Yeah. There's not a lot of other songs that are as obviously kind of adhering to that structure. So that one was coming up a lot. Yeah, so that's, that's Brian Eno's Babies on Fire for... For those who aren't familiar. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, and it's right. funny because that, when I first heard it, that's what I immediately thought of. But it's kind of pulled out of nowhere. That's one of the great things because weirdly, although you kind of think that the sound of that whole album could you know, create a musical genre of its own mm. and it has had such an impact and influence, but it's surprising how few people go back and, and pull from it because it sounds yeah. so great. And particularly, I think, in the context of Turning Green, you know, it starts off with this great groove, you hear the vocal, and then... As you say, it, the guitar doesn't really appear until about two minutes in or two and a half minutes in, and then then it kind of mm -hmm. takes over, and it's just yeah. the, these amazing guitar solos. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was one of those, like a classic um, first idea, best idea. Mm. Like I tried many, many takes to um, get a better guitar take, do a better solo, but I, I went back. This must be the – I think this was the first one. It's and an I, edit of the first, but it's a minimal yeah. edit just to kind of blend – the two parts together mm. more seamlessly. Yeah, but it just, it was perfectly imperfect, mm. you know? Yeah. yeah. I think we did this song in that first session of four days in December. And then I think you and I continually had the conversation, oh, we'll redo it. And, you know, and Courtney was listening to the parts and kind of pulling out the bits that were crucial in that solo. But then it just, Every time you tried to do it, it was like, oh, there's something about... It was too nice. It was too nice and too weird and too, ex you know, it's so exciting when you hear a sound like that the first time and it's being fed back into your headphones when mm. you're playing. 
kind of like just hearing the delay on a drum or something. You just want to play it differently. It's that kind of thing. It's it's always really exciting the first time it happens. So, yeah. Mm. Well, we should um, have another burst of the guitar. Well, Absolutely. and the whole song so that um, yeah. people can hear it in all its glory. It's party. So one of the things that I really love about the track is the many different random elements and yet they're kind of not random, you know, because all the different random percussive bits, you've chosen to make them in that way, you know, and and similarly the bass line seems as if it's just doing one thing constantly, but actually as we listen to it isolated, you realise, oh no, it's more of a a scale or something that it's doing and and it is moving around much more than than you realise when you get locked in, you get kind of hypnotised by the groove, don't you? Yeah, Mm. absolutely. I think when you're, even the most restrained musicians, when you're trying to play the same thing for four minutes, you'll just have a natural inclination to build something up and and make it more exciting as it moves along into sections. So I think all those things that you're talking about are kind of a product of that inability to resist, you know, a lack of (laughs) (laughs) self-control. when we hear the solo there's a certain delight about it isn't there you know you you can hear a delight in what you're doing almost like you're constantly surprising yourself and I guess with the three of you working you know with with Courtney playing and then the two of you manipulating that you were being surprised by what you were hearing Courtney yeah completely oh yeah I think everyone had a big grin on their face when that was happening you know and sometimes it's rare when you're when you're doing something really fun in the studio it might not always connect with something that actually sounds good, you know, like playing, <laughs> having something pleasurable physically, you know, or even aesthetically to you and your headphones when you listen back. It's like, oh, it's a bit excessive. <laughs> but I think it's the best case scenario when you're really enjoying doing something and, and then you listen back and it's just as exciting as it was when you were doing it. Yeah. Totally. It sounds fantastic. Um, And that's Turning Green. We're going to look at another one of the songs from Things Take Time, Take Time in just a moment. We've got Here's the Thing to listen to next. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. 
As you can understand, organizing and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So we're back in the room. (laughs) Courtney, Stella and myself. And the next one we're going to look at is Here's the Thing. And it's an interesting one to turn to because after turning green, this is quite a contrast, really. Yeah, I mean, a much kind of softer, gentler song compared to turning green the kind of abrasiveness (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's pretty dreamy um and i think stella you're going to play us the the finished version now so we can enter the dream world of here's the thing good night everybody (laughs) sleep tight in the world here's the thing I think Um, so it's interesting but we start with turning green because in some ways turning green is a bit of an anomaly on on the record in that it kind of rocks out there's that kind of crazy guitar solo all these wonderful different sounds going on and yet for much of the album it's all about the songs isn't it it's all about getting across what you're trying to say in, in the songs and and in some ways the whole record is is quite a contrast to your previous albums Courtney where in many ways, they're band performances, and you know you do rock out more, and and you can hear that chemistry between you know three people playing in a room. And here's the thing: is a good example of exploring new territory in a way. You know, it kind of leads with the drum machine. It's not the Courtney Barnett we're necessarily familiar with from some of the other recordings. Yeah, I think it was kind of uh, maybe a lot truer to kind of capturing the the sound of. Um, as the song was created, I wanted it to sound a little bit more kind of intimate. And um, I think, you know, doing so many kind of um, 
demos just straight onto my phone and then listening back to them and they have they always have this real charm to them and um this real kind of vulnerability that somehow you go into the fanciest studio in the world with the most expensive microphones and it never it never sounds the same because you kind of it always captures this little um this moment you're by yourself and and um for whatever reason it's so magical and i think I think I remember coming up with this guitar line. I was sitting on the ca- I was watching TV and I was just playing guitar, kind of endlessly playing guitar, and somehow this guitar riff made its way into my fingers and and it became a song. And um yeah, so when I did talk to Stella about these recordings, I kind of wanted to keep it as close to that as possible and then I think you know, like last year is um, one of the longest periods of time I've ever spent by myself. I was in this flat writing this record and um, I think that when I listen back to the songs now, I realise that I was kind of creating this music that I wanted to listen to. I wanted to, to listen to music that made me feel calm and safe and quiet and in this kind of meditative place and so that's what the songs kind of ended up being they were kind of softer and gentler and a little bit more um repetitive and yeah yeah and so for this do you have a similar set of demos recorded on the settee in the yeah, lounge well, the archivist strikes again <laughs> there is um would you rather play the your garage band version of it with the drum machine or you want to start real simple with the the voice memo that Courtney recorded for this which I love because it's got my favorite intro oh yeah um, yeah yeah start with that one yeah sure. this one's a little more stripped back and then you kind of hear the drum machine creeping in on the next one but this is kind of where it starts very happy when I came up with this melody. It felt very like a satisfying melody to pull out of thin air. Bit of a George Benson technique there, <laughs> following the guitar line. The kind of vocal melody is the same. Yeah. I know that's what you were thinking. You were, you're obsessed with John Benson. <laughs> He's your guy, right? <laughs> he is my man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'd never, when Courtney sent me this song, I just, it was so emotional and so beautiful. And I think I texted you back and said, I've never heard you sing like that mm. before. I'd heard her do, you know, on the Kurt and Courtney tour, you did a Gillian Welch cover. And that was very gentle, and I, I kind of always knew that you were, you loved this kind of music, and 
but I'd never heard your demos or the start, the beginning of songs, and you know, I was just floored when I heard this, you know? So really um, very vulnerable but very confident. This is interesting because this really stands alone as it is. You know, you Absolutely. could you could release this, and it's very totally. fully realised at this stage. This song, um, in terms of lyrics and the rest of the melody. Yeah, was it all? Yeah, done? I think when we went to the studio, it was done. It was done. Yeah, like I was quite happy with the. It's quite a simple structure, but um, yeah, it was. It felt quite fully realised. Yeah. You even have this section, which is kind of the longer instrumental section. We just kept mm. the arrangement as is. And I think the main thing for this one was just knowing that it was there, yeah. you know, and it shouldn't be too overcooked, really. You know, you kind of push the energy or the emotion of it too far and it, it can be, you know... Too much. Yeah, I think a little aggressive or, mm. you know, mm. there is something just immediately captivating about just this version you know yeah totally but but at the same time you did try a garage band version then yeah we'll, we'll play you that one so yeah was that after or it would have been probably after this after this one yeah. so this was a very early version and then here's courtney's garage band this demo, is yeah because i could hear the an idea of the beat or i had these little i had a few drum machines around the house that i would kind of play along to you got this ace tone which is sitting here mm-hmm. just off camera my beautiful ace tone. Yeah, which looks like a giant bass amp, but it's actually, right. well, it is also an amplifier, but it runs kind of beautiful sounding old, you know, motoric beats. And is that the one on this or this was like a I'm programmed? I'm not sure what this one was. And this is when you were saying that you'd kind of figured out the, the bass line and the harmonies. Mm. Here's the thing. It's adorable. <laughs> yeah, I'm riding. Oh yeah, you were saying that this was funk box, right? Oh yeah, maybe it was the funk box app. I love that thing. Mm. Oh, here's the bass. simple very fitting and the the use of the drum machines was it just because they were there or is this something that you had thought of for a while that you know you thought would open up new possibilities for you um i have always kind of used drum machines a lot in my songwriting i just um don't take them much further than that normally because i think somewhere along the way kind of the idea of the rule was that you finish a song and then you take it to the band and you all use real instruments and and that's the next step when obviously it doesn't need to be like that so yeah it was just kind of um finding a way to make or make two things coexist yeah i just find it useful because i when i'm when i'm writing songs i kind of hit record and just work on a song for 30 minutes. So I just kind of leave the drum machine going and, you know, end up with these 30-minute demos sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, none of which I will unleash today. But, um, 
yeah, I think it's just it's easy to to kind of get lost, and then the ideas sometimes start flowing in that state. Yeah, and w- with both of these demos, I mean, it, the song is is very fully realised. It's worked out. So when you then go to the studio, and you already you know are, are kind of treasuring, particularly you know Stella, is it really appreciating? You know the aspects, the adorable aspects of these demos. You know, mm. then you have to start again. You know, and and what do you do? I mean, do you scrap it all and have a blank canvas, or or do you take elements of those demos? I think as much as possible. If if the person who's written the song or created the demos has within those demos some kind of a strong vision, then it's kind of counterintuitive, and I find it's a bit time wasting to to try and kind of impart your own stronger vision of that, especially when you are immediately attached and immediately attracted to a song like that. There's just, you know, the concrete slab is there and the structure of the house is there. There's no need to kind of use your own materials or kind of, you know, it's a poor analogy, but it is um, (laughs) very much, I mean, you could see the architecture of that song immediately. And this was actually recorded I had maybe heard this song the earliest you'd maybe sent this one to me first as this version but we didn't really get around to recording it till the second session which was in that um February of this year and so before that we had this pre-production period which was in we we went up to northern New South Wales and set up a little studio and kind of instead of being in a fancy studio and and or renting something excessive, we just kind of found a beautiful natural environment to set up shop and work through some of these songs. And with that batch of songs, which was, yeah, I guess the second half of the record very much, we just tried to hone in a little bit more on those rhythmic things so that we weren't making those decisions in the studio and I remember this one actually being this one took a little bit of time to find the exact beat because you had done you'd done a version with your band of this oh, song yeah. where Dave was playing kind of what you had programmed in your demo. Yep. And trying to play all those bits and it took a minute to kind of just find the natural feel. I remember we programmed a bunch of stuff and did different versions with different beats. Yeah, yeah, this song did have, yeah, had a few different versions. But then we settled on this kind of 707 beat that runs counter to the live drums. The live drums are basically just copying that same feel. Mm. Yeah, but it's interesting that that in a way you went back to your default um, or previous experience and thought, oh, well, I'll try it like this, but then... You know, realized, oh, actually, no, that's not necessarily working this time. No, I think I we need to explore further. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, again, just part of that process. Some things work and some things don't. I think a lot of this was the beat because, you know, that kind of guitar line is really what drives this song. And the beat was just what I couldn't quite, uh, nothing felt right. Like even obviously the garage band um, beat was... I liked the idea of it, but that didn't feel completely right. And mm. so everyone was trying their best to, <laughs> to find what it thing. was. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard thing when something actually just, it seems so simple mm. in a way, but it's like one 
offbeat or one kind of accent on something can make it sound either too sparse or too busy and you know it can be it can drive you up a wall sometimes but we did get there i mean it wasn't too frustrating once we actually focused on on that part of the the arrangement and and it it did feel good we kind of we programmed a lot of these things i had this um electron analog rhythm and i'd instead of using it for what most kind of techie programmers use it for, which is kind of Aphex 20 sounding programming. I like to just put all my favorite drum machine samples on there so I don't have to travel around with like five or six units. And so the 707 was kind of a favorite. The 707, 606 Roland sounds were kind of our favorites. And the MXR drum computer, everything that sounded like an Arthur Russell song. Right. I think that was the aesthetic that we were going for, for actually most of the album, weirdly, especially the demos. Mm, mm-hmm. And those kind of sounds that he had and kind of like Googling which drum machines that he was using and, and getting pretty close to that, you know, getting away from that 808 sound and getting more into when drum machines tried to sound like real drums, but yeah, also failed miserably in, a, in another <laughs> charming way. So the we kind of really settled on the the seven oh seven sound. This is the demo beat, but when we went into Golden Retriever, we fed each individual drum voice into the tape machine. And we should note that we did most of the recordings to a Studer twenty four inch tape machine. So a lot of this stuff, instead of just kind of going DI into Pro Tools or into an amp or anything, we wanted it to kind of sit well with the drums and all the other stuff that was going to tape so it didn't sound too modern. Yeah. And then, yeah, the drums. Oh, and your favorite, Courtney's favorite um, studio trick which is the fake shaker, we call it, which is this sound where um, you gain up the the rack tom or floor tom microphone to an extreme and then just brush over the skin. So it makes this kind of sound, which we call fake shaker, which I'll play. There's a lot of fake shaker on this one which mixed with an, a real shaker sounds very nice. There's yeah, fake shaker all over this album. The whole album is strictly fake shaker. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of that was also like kind of trying to take some of the drum voices and making them more organic. So if there was like a kabasa sound or a shaker sound or something instead of making it all electronic trying to re- recreate some of that with live instruments. But um, we won't just talk about the drums, which I could talk about <laughs> forever. But um, there is a cool bit where the drums and the drum machine are kind of playing the same thing throughout most of the song, but then there's moments where one will stop and it was fun to kind of play around the program drums, at least for a moment. So in this kind of breakdown bit just little things like that that i love i love just the um 
there's so much beautiful percussion on this album, like amongst the kind of, the between the live drums and the drum machines, just these really little surprising kind of pieces of percussion, which I find so pleasing, especially in headphones when you kind of really, when you really get to hear them. There's lots of nice surprises. Yeah. Oh, that fake shaker. <laughs> and then the beautiful guitars. <laughs> Mostly MIDI verb. Was this acoustic and electric? This is acoustic. Yeah, hard panned. And then kind of drier guitars. Oh, yeah. And then these cool guitar hits, which I think we did in Yukai, mm. in northern New South Wales, which we did in the demo, and we kind of we flew a lot of things in from the demo for this one, and there was this great weird sound that Courtney was making. This kind of belly sound you were making with your guitar that we then sampled and put in different mm. parts of the song. I think that's the, the thing at the the bottom of the jag, like whatever it's called, below the bridge. Under the bridge downtown. <laughs> Do we need to pay someone money for that? <laughs> the technical, yeah. that's the technical term. Yeah. And then was there the bow on yeah. this song? So basically when, when we tracked it, you wanted to play your guitar with a bow, which I thought was insane, no. <laughs> and it made the most beautiful horn-like sound. It sounds like a brass section playing, you know, over a canyon. <laughs> and it's just, what was it, a violin bow or cello uh, bow? A cello bow. And it was when we put it in the mix with a little bit of MIDI verb it just sounded like a different instrument, you know. It didn't have this kind of, if you dry it out, it has this beautiful kind of Warren Ellisy moody sound. This is kind of the dry bow here. And then when you add the MIDI verb in, it has these crazy overtones, which just make it sound like like a reverbed trumpet, which we would have never, we never would have made a conscious decision to add horn or brass tones to this song. But it just, it was definitely one of those happy accidents and kind of in the middle eight of the song really become a feature. Like that overtone. Yeah, it sounds like a horn. <laughs> Yeah. And then you kind of go off here with the bow. Oh, and the omnichord as well. Yeah. We've got this omnichord also going through a eventide H3000. It's just kind of one of those disorientating sounds that a lot of people, when they hear it, they're like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out what that is, you know. Yeah. And I love, I love those little Easter eggs on albums where you just kind of want to ask the musicians how they did certain things. Yeah, so together that 
the bows and the omnichord are really the kind of creepier parts of the song in an otherwise languid, sweet song. Yeah. Well, they really create the kind of dream world quality to it. Um, exactly. Which is really interesting because in some ways, um, lyrically on this record, there's a, a slight change to your approach, I think, Courtney, in that um, you know, on most of the songs, there's less detail and less narrative, less storytelling possibly. And you cre- really create both lyrically and then with the music, this sense that in a way time is standing still, that um, you're ruminating on things, you're mm. thinking about things, but time isn't necessarily happening. You know, nothing big is happening. And yet big things are in your mind about what mm. you'd like to happen or you know, just meeting someone. No, it's quite interesting how well it's reflected, but also this slight change in in your approach to lyric writing. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know how conscious that decision was, but I definitely definitely did try to kind of simplify my ideas and I think I was writing so much. I mean, I always do write a lot and then really edit it down to the most kind of, simple and strongest because there's such kind of strength in simplicity and when you know when when something can just hit you so hard that's so obvious and so simple and and you say oh I could have done that or I could have written that Mm -hmm. um (laughs) that's my favorite thing you know when you see something that you love or you hear a song that you love and it makes perfect sense to you but but yeah, you hadn't seen it like that before, or you hadn't thought about it that way before. Mm. Um, so I guess I guess I did kind of try to to simplify, and and I guess that matches the kind of musical side of it. I was trying to kind of just slow everything down a little bit and peel back some of the layers and see what made more sense. Yeah, it's interesting with some of the details that the kind of detailed approach that you've always had. You know, a little little moments that you give us an exact description of are still there and say maybe with Ray Street, which we heard right at the beginning of the podcast, you know, that's a, a good example. It's almost setting up this new world that you're, you know, I, I'm not quite sure whether this is the case, but you moved to Ray Street. This is Ray Street, everybody. This is what it's like. Um, and then the rest of the record, it, it's more about whatever emotional journey you're you're going through. And with Here's the Thing, we're in this moment where so time stands still, and uh, but the detail mm. is still there. You know that moment about the windowsill and the sunlight coming through. You know we can all kind of picture that, and it's hopefully maybe a moment that we've all experienced in some ways when suddenly, oh wow, you know the the beauty of of life or nature kind of hits us and stops us in our tracks for a moment, mm. know, and it's beautifully expressed in that way. And with this kind of dreamy quality to the music, that it, clearly you spent a lot of time creating, you know, and getting right, you know, all those little ingredients that you've been describing, you know, helps create a kind of magical combination. Yeah. I I think that that's one of my favorite lyrics on the album. The, um, that second verse of this song, the windowsill is momentarily filled with sun and it's these small thrills that get you through the day until the next one. I think it was just realizing the really kind of simple moments and the small moments in life that, are very easy to kind of pass over or look over and just kind of trying to find joy in them. So it was nice for me to focus on those things. 
and nice for us to hear about. You know, I love moments like that where, you know, you, we get to value, you know, the small things as much as as the big things. You know, it's important. It's important to have artists pointing this out to us <laughs> so that we, we don't get distracted by meaningless trivia. No. <laughs> well, we we should move on to another one of the songs. So maybe we should play out with a bit more of Here's the Thing, the, the kind of finished version, and, and get lost in this world once more. I don't It's, it's great after having you point out all these different things. You know, as we listen again, we hear them all. You know, we hear all those little <laughs> yeah. details. It's the great. Weird, creepy moments. So that's Here's the Thing by Courtney Barnett, and we're going to take another break, and we'll be back to look at Oh the Night next. So the next song we're going to look at is Oh the Night, but before we start digging into that, Stella, I wanted to ask how you went from being an extraordinary drummer and musician and became an extraordinary producer. You know, did it seem like the natural next step, or um, was it something that you harboured ambitions of for a long time? I'm not sure if I harboured um, strong ambitions, but I think Warpaint made an album in 2013 with Flood, super producer, or as he likes to call himself now, heritage producer. <laughs> um, he worked with us on our second record, our self-titled record, and he and I became quite close and we shared a lot of our demos that I had kind of recorded mostly by virtue of just knowing how to use a DAW and, and having a sound card and things like that. I ended up recording a lot of the demos and a lot of the rough versions of those Warpaint songs in my basement or in Joshua Tree where we were writing. And when we were talking about building the songs out, Flood was actually quite, as we were, quite attached to a lot of our demos. And, and I think working with him and kind of, befriending him and, and getting inside of his, his brain a little bit was this really uh, illuminating experience for me that producing is not this dark art necessarily. It's it's about supporting people and, and artists to create the best work that they can create, whether that can be, you know, creating friction sometimes or, or creating a passionate response to something or making it a very pleasant experience just depending on you know, who you're working with and and what they need to kind of express their um, perfect version of this, of an album or of a song. And, and it kind of gave me this confidence that I wasn't really necessarily looking for, but it was this kind of um, sideways or lateral move into another thing that I actually realised I was m- maybe doing 
unintentionally or, or unknowingly in different bands and different projects and, and something that I really, really enjoyed and felt very comfortable doing. And I think also as a session musician sometimes or as a drummer on, on records, I think maybe in a very gentle way it can be a form of production the way that any other musician playing on an album can be producing something, but it's also a very humbling experience in in that it's it's very um, useful to listen to what the artist wants and what they need and what their vision is and without getting in the way too much. And I kind of decided that that might, that might be a useful thing to bring into recording situations and album production situations where um, that's something that I'd kind of experienced before that, that came quite naturally to me and maybe was use, a useful approach for other artists to have in the studio, especially in intimate situations or vulnerable situations. And, yeah, so it just kind of it happened quite naturally and, and when I did start to think about it, there were weird opportunities that came up out of nowhere there was this band just before I'd worked with Courtney. I'd officially produced my first record with a band in LA called Cryo Geyser, who we'd never met before. They had no idea that I had any aspirations of production or any of that kind of work and reached out cold to me to produce their record. And I just thought, you know, these things are happening often enough and there's some kind of sign from the universe that maybe this is a useful I can be of use to people, you know, in this environment. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Courtney's new album, is this technically your second official producer album or is it more than that? Yeah, I think in terms of my name is on the credits as having a production role, but in my band in Warpaint we do, we often share a lot of what we consider to be the production duties. So we're the albums are co-produced by Warpaint and whichever producer we're working with at the time. Yeah, but it's funny because it seems in some ways, you know, your name appears in, in the credits of so many different records in different ways that, you know, it's not the first time we're introduced to Stella Moskowa, producer. You no, know, it feels like you're kind of there already in a way. Yeah, I'm, I'm overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get rid of me. So back to Things Take Time, Take Time. Oh, The Night is the next song we're going to look at. It's the closing song on the album. And this is different again in that it seems really stripped back and really simple, you know, and it starts with piano. I mean, we, we tend to associate Courtney with guitars and, and you know, the world of, of guitar. Um, and you know, what, how did this one come about? This one, um, I... It's funny because my last album... Tell me how you really feel. I wrote a lot of that on piano and I kept kind of saying, this is my piano album, but I never played it, you know, in the studio at all. All the songs were guitar based. And, um, but for me, it was just an interesting way to write. It brought out different melodies in my head and because I'm a very, very basic piano player. So, um, you know, my brain is working differently because it's focusing so hard on hitting the right notes. But this song again, started as a guitar song. And I thought I actually wrote it in December 2020 when we were in Sydney, like around the time of the first 
session for the album. But when I looked back in my archives, um, <laughs> I think I had started writing the song in when I was in America, like maybe a of like February 2020. But I think that I had come up with the melody and kind of the chords and um, and liked it and recorded it and then t- completely forgotten about it. And then the day that I started playing it again in December 2020, it just came to my fingers and I started singing it straight away and I thought it was one of those magical songs that you write on the spot that everyone, you know, talks about once in a while it happens. And I was like, oh, my God, I just... I just wrote this song <laughs> in like five minutes. It sounds classic. <laughs> and then I realized I'd just forgotten it. I'd forgotten it and remembered it again. And then we worked on it. Um, I was like, I really would like to record this in, in one of these sessions. And uh, when we went to northern New South Wales in between the, the album sessions, we worked on it there, right? We did the demoing. Yeah, this one took took quite a few turns mm. in that I hadn't heard the original um, archived demo from Courtney's iPhone till today or yesterday when right. we were putting together these stems. So I also thought that the first time I had maybe heard this was around the first Sydney sessions and I remember you playing it before we were in the studio when you were playing me a lot of your songs just on acoustic guitar. I remember mm. you playing it on a balcony somewhere that's I just have this memory of yeah. you on a balcony I don't know and um yeah I was equally surprised to hear this very first demo which then you'll you'll hear the progression of the song and the different versions of it and this one was it definitely wore a few different hats we'll say that much yeah before we hear the demo should we hear yeah. the finished version absolutely here it comes So that's how the finished version of Oh The Night ended up. But you were saying, Stella, it went uh, through many changes. It wore many hats. It wore so many hats. <laughs> Berets and Panama hats and fedoras even. Wow. Yeah, it was one of those, I mean, we'll get to it later when we go back to that final version, but um, we definitely had a few moments in the studio where we were trying to find the correct home for this song and for the the atmosphere of the song and it was one of those late night you know last song of the of the evening late session kind of delirium moments yeah. where you th- picture what it would be like if someone was by chance documenting or filming the no, process of going it felt like a montage in a movie <laughs> like um what's that Music and lyrics with um, Hugh, Grant. Hugh Grant and, and Drew, Drew Barrymore. Barrymore. It's like a, a, a montage 
in a film of writing a song yeah. moment. It felt well, like you that. just can't figure it out. So you're trying it a million different <laughs> ways. Or even, you know, Sympathy for the Devil, you know, the um, the Rolling Stones yeah. film, like when they're trying to figure out like the vibe of the song, but it just sounds awful for the first kind of 30 minutes to an hour till they really crack the code. I mean, it wasn't sounding awful. It just wasn't sounding correct. And there mm. was also an alternate version to this the same way that um, we heard in, um, Turning, in Green, Turning Green down the yeah. street. Yeah, and, and it was kind of late in the night and we weren't doing like mega late night studio sessions, but I did have a moment like Simon and Chloe were being very patient and very supportive, but I was like, oh, no, are they just yeah. watching us? Being like it should be the end of the night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we felt, and you kind of do lo- lose perspective in those moments or lose objectivity. So it's those moments where you're kind of calling out for the voice of reason, and we would talk to them through the microphones downstairs in the live room and just say, "Well, is any of this sounding good at all?" Because <laughs> we were trading instruments, you know, a million different ways, and. We were just like, just making sure, have we lost our minds and are we being really annoying and should we just go to bed? But, yeah, I think um, really, I think this one is actually maybe my favourite on the record and I'm really glad that it kind of ended up the way that it ended up, but it had an interesting journey and it started with this demo that neither of us knew existed. Till the other day. I'm kind of scared to listen to it now. I can't remember. Okay. Well, anyway. look, if we can, we can play it and we can, you know, yeah. at your discretion, yes. it can be uh, cut from the final <laughs> podcast, I'm sure. Ooh. Oh, the night so, so this actually is not the original version. This is the... This Northern is New South Wales. Northern New South Wales. So you'd already established it. We don't have that one that we just talked yeah. about at length, but this is kind of the beginning of this version of the song for sure. Yeah, and all the words aren't there. Like, yeah. But you do say, oh, the night, which... That's the only words I've the decided on, I think, yeah. at this point. And then you can hear quite audibly in this next version from probably the same time. Actually, you know what? I think this first one was from Sydney. This might have been the balcony oh, era yeah. of this song when I first heard it. And then this next version, you can hear alarmingly loud, almost completely dominant sound of cicadas uh, in northern New South Wales in the, the height of summer. And this is kind of when it got more developed, okay. maybe. Uh, it says, let's see. It says demo chorus, so I think this is when maybe you figured out the chorus. But, mm-hmm. you know, we'll find out together. Yeah. Beautiful birds as well. always laughing at your jokes again Melodies there, but the mm. the lyrics are still amorphous. Mm. 
chorus of cicadas. <laughs> yeah. I love all these nature sounds. Yeah. And I don't Do you remember that moment? When you were recording that? Yeah. I mean you can hear like you can hear lines that end up in the final version. Hmm. But then there's lots of mumbling and lots of something, something, something. Mm. But the melody, the rough, like, kind of um, pattern yeah. of the melody and the direction of the melody is very similar. Yeah, I reckon I just figured out that melody and then I hit record. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, after that, mm. in that same session, it kind of went through that demo, that next demo stage involving the drum machine and kind of basic guitars and so this is kind of where we settled and what we were quite excited by which was it's called yukai demo it sounds a little bit like this quite a different feel bass in this one yeah I love those hi-hats yeah there's really nice lines in this one we became quite attached to this version and thought this was the feel of the song it's kind of shuffly and then we basically recreated something very similar at Golden Retriever that next month and it kind of I guess it just didn't quite feel right for whatever reason and it also had the same beat and the same feel as Here's the Thing yeah. And it kind of, you, right. you, as you start to kind of build the material for the record, you start to realize, oh God, there's like, these things are, they're identical twins, you know? There has to be some kind of point of difference, I think, to allow the song to really shine on the record. And so that's when we started our um, kind of descent into madness. <laughs> <laughs> I still love this version. It's I a mean, great version, there yeah. were just some alternate lyrics which I had forgotten about. And can you... Oh, no, we can't separate... Oh, that's okay. We don't have the stems for this That's one, okay. Um, no, I just remembered we can do it in the... Um, in the other version? Yeah, the um, pitched vocal. Did we have oh, that yeah, separate? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So this is where we came up with this idea for pitching. I used this Sound Toys, just the little Alter Boy plug-in, which is just like a great pitching tool. And instead of singing a harmony to it, just kind of pitched... Courtney's vocals down and then we just we got really attached to that and that made it into the very different next version of the song but I'll play this one out just because it's pretty interesting and it's got that same tambourine sound and kind of feel Mm as here's the thing. 
There's something really charming about this version. I think we'll just remaster the record and put this one out instead. Oh, and look, this little, that melody at the end is there. I forgot oh, about yeah. that. I thought we made that up later. Great ending. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I, I feel that there's a, a Demos companion album <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, coming to life now. Absolutely. I, we did become so attached to the stuff we did in um, in Yukai in northern New South Wales mm. that was kind of part of that same session with just the really stripped-down drum machines and guitars and bass. It's pretty much all we had. Mm. And, yeah, we've definitely talked about kind of trying to recreate those or even kind of mix them in a nice way just as a really interesting record of the direction of the album. Yeah, definitely. We'll it's, it's very TBD. interesting to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so then then we kind of did a version of that. In the studio. In the studio, pretty much exactly how you hear it, but with a couple of live drums and and heard it back and just realised that it felt it was way, it was occupying the same space as Here's the Thing in many ways musically and tonally. And so I can't remember the next step that we took. I think we just tried a few different drum feels, I think, and we tried to do it with a really simple beat. Oh, First the, you were still playing guitar yeah, yeah. for Oh The Night, and I can't remember how it happened, but I think it was just one of those, God, this could be a really horrible time suck or it could really work to just even just to reset our energy and our approach to the song and so I can't remember whether it was me or you suggested I just said why don't you play drums to Courtney and I'll play the piano just to try something completely different and because I felt like I had kind of reached the point of completion in terms of the creative process of, of writing a different drum part yeah, we had to totally change it up, I think, to kind of to get anywhere. Which, you know, seems like a good tool, but also when you get down the rabbit hole with stuff like that, you just think, God, again, am I just wasting everybody's time with this idea? But Courtney has such a, I mean, this really is, I'm not just saying it to be, you know, a nice person, but <laughs> I really think that this is the absolutely by far the best drum performance on the record it really just sounds like that kind of Zuma era, Neil Young drum feel, which I think everyone just dreams of playing. Every drummer dreams of it. Every artist wants it on their record. And Courtney just nailed it, immediately started playing it, and it was just so creative and interesting. And I'll solo the drums just so you can kind of hear how cool it is. And again, first take maybe ish mm. that yeah. first night the first night where we um were losing our minds first take best take first take best take almost always and you can hear the piano bleed coming in And you're kind of singing scratch, like you're kind of mumbling the structure of the song from the drums. Mm. And I think we kept we kept your scratch vocal that you did after you played the drums. Yeah, and again yep. it was like the intention to do a better take later and but there was something really special about these first few takes and even 
I think as well, yeah, my tricking my brain into, you know, doing a, a scratch vocal and thinking that, you know, we'll have time to get the better one later, so I'll just do this one carefree, and it always ends up being the best one. I'm, sh- I'm sure that happens all the time with everyone, but it always, there's something, there's a part, you know, that outsmarts mm. ourselves. We did so many takes after this. We did more takes of drums and piano. And I did so many other vocal takes, but they were never as good. Let's just solo you. And the day seems so Drums and box. (laughs) That nice kind of Lennon-y slap back on both the drums and the oh we've also got um leticia from we've got her vocals in there as well that's her californian vocals recorded to a cassette tape oh yeah four track right yeah i think so the sentimental scenes Sorry that I've been slow, you know. Yeah, I just love her voice so much. You both have such different voices, but together it's just magical. How I really feel, won't you meet me somewhere in the middle on our own time zone? And your vocals, Courtney, they're recorded after you've recorded that drums. And the, the piano, so they're not you singing along to you playing the drums. No, they were. We did try a few takes like that, but it never got there. So the vocals on the album are um, separate to that track of us playing. But it's definitely scratch. We was like, okay, well, that's not working at the drums, so just throw something down so we can get the structure of the song. Mm. But we kept that take. And there's probably a little bit of whisper tra- Yeah, like Stella said, I was kind of whispering the lyrics as I was playing drums so I could remember where I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm sure that that's in there very softly. Yes, you can hear that in the drums. But, yeah, it was kind of, I remember it was late night and it was the room was quite dark and I remember singing it and it just felt like quite an emotional vocal take. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And do you have a particular mic that you like to use for your vocals or would it change from doing the scratch vocals? Would you change up the mic if you were then going to do a proper take or would it just remain the same? I think for this whole, these whole sessions, I used this exact mic, didn't I? Yeah, in- SM7B in at Golden Retriever and then we ended up buying... We basically tried to recreate the chain when we were doing home recordings for your extra vocals. Mm. So yeah. yeah, this exact microphone that we are recording this podcast yeah. on. The one I, think, voice. I mean, we definitely tried um, We tried a whole bunch of other mics, but in the end, I think this one, and I've done that in the past. I think I, for Avant Gardner or something, I'm pretty sure Dan Luscombe was recording my vocals and we used, I'm pretty sure we used a 57. I was sitting on the edge of his bed <laughs> recording the vocals. I think you can hear like a tram driving past. But um, I don't know, sometimes the really, really nice mics freak me out it's almost like an aesthetic thing i imagine that it's like knowing that you're doing kind of a scratch vocal if you're sitting in front of a pop filter with like a neumann a beautiful kind mm. of 
tube microphone or something and or you're in a booth even kind of by yourself I imagine that it's it gets pretty freaky yeah yeah there's something I'm uh, doing my vocals now yeah a lot more casual Mm. um and comfortable yeah I don't know I liked this mic though it's good oh yeah sounds great just solo some of your we kept the idea of the pitched vocals in here so there's sorry that i've been slow you know it takes a little time for me to show it's courtney's natural baritone i really feel won't you it's very buried it was much louder in the demo but we we kind of remained attached to it so we kept it in there can we solo all the all the vocals all of them absolutely here we go this is everything with the pitch sorry that i've been slow you know it takes a little time for me to show and then um david wrench who you definitely know yeah. Mix engineer extraordinaire and a good friend of mine did um some great effects on that part on the mix with the the pitched vocals. Sorry that I've been slow, you know it takes a little time for me to show kind of tape echoey mm. really tasteful. Yeah, just kind of really dreamy, perfect touch to that song. Mm. And we tried bass. Oh, yeah, the bass didn't we work. Tried, yeah, we tried putting bass on it and it just felt so good with just the simple elements that we had. It felt too stated, you know, because it was already so stripped back and felt quite felt like it was getting the point across exactly as it was. Yeah, everywhere we tried to bring the bass in, it just felt too rocky. Yeah. <laughs> like too aware of itself. Yeah. But instead we just kind of copied that line that you hear at the end of that Yukai demo. Oh, the melody, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a bit later. Sorry, they're the vocals I meant to, that verse. The verse? With Latifia. Oh, I can do that. Yeah. Absolutely. And the day seems so familiar Like a film you've never seen Yeah, you still get that strange nostalgia In the sentiment I just love her voice. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. Mm, sounds lovely. But we should hear the piano um, soloed, I think. Oh, my God. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Well, you were just being so modest about it. I thought I'd play along with that. But um, just because, I mean, that was a big change, wasn't it? To go from all the so many different versions with guitar to suddenly change around who was playing what, but also Mm. to from guitar to piano, and it's a big step. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It was kind of just like a tool to shake it up initially. And just to kind of move it along and not be playing guitar mm. you know i didn't play any guitar on the record 
because it's just not my territory. <laughs> you play okay. piano very nicely. Thanks. There was a little bit of editing with this one. Also, I think you did technically play a tiny bit of guitar on um, something. Yeah, that. Oh, uh, it was a song that was kind of a B-side, though. Oh, wasn't it? <laughs> well, who you, knows? Who you cares? Should <laughs> <laughs> I should know. <laughs> but yeah, so it was like a very simple, just kind of plodding along, keeping some kind of harmonic melodic movement Mm. but nothing special at all but in a way the way you played that piano kind of determined the drum beat for the chorus yeah because you were playing the fills you did the along with it just like the coolest those and the rest of the record is you know there's like some tricky bits with the percussion but it's pretty straight down the line for the most part and so this one just feels like there's this freedom to it. We did it without a click, no drum machines, commando. <laughs> and it just feels like a really nice way to finish off the record. Mm. Yeah, totally. That's what I was going to say. It's interesting because it, it, it's the last track and has a, a different kind of feel to everything else. And in a way, it sounds from the way you've been illustrating it, it sounds as if a lot of production went into the vocals for this particular track whereas on some of the other tracks it's more thinking about the instrumentation and, and effects on those but mm. here you have you know the, the harmonies and the, the pitch shifting and mm. you know so although Definitely. you've really simplified it with the piano and the drums it's still being worked on with the way that you've recorded the vocals yeah I think when we did strip it down you know when you strip it down to like one or two elements as well as the vocals then that has to be very strong and it has to be really captivating and because there's nowhere to hide you know kind of what Courtney was talking about with lyric writing and how that transforms over time where you start to just peel away the layers of performance in a kind of in some way and just this is the raw material and this is the raw idea it's kind of like the three-piece why three-piece bands are just so interesting and so powerful because there is nowhere to hide everyone has to be really strong Mm. and so yeah the drum performance is so cool the piano is just keeping it moving and the vocals have to be they have to express and convey the message of the song you know the sonic quality of them they can't be too affected or too rough or you know yeah i love this song a double kick there oh yeah you love that don't you (laughs) my favorite part of the album it's Courtney's favorite part of the album was this double kick pattern here yep there it is you heard it <laughs> a little Metallica moment but yeah the last bit is kind of where we it's kind of the a placeholder for some kind of solo or some kind of build you know because it does kind of stay pretty steady so we've got this nylon string guitar that Courtney's playing. Oh, we added the nylon string guitar at Ray Street. We do do it at Ray Street. We said this would sound so good with a nylon string guitar, so we ran down the road and bought one for $99. Yeah. Wow. From Manny's Music in Fitzroy. Yep. Shout out to Manny's. (laughs) And these are your original guitars. The original guitars going through a Leslie. From Northern New South Wales? No, this is from Golden Retriever. And then on top of that, just to kind of build it a little further, 
you'll hear I put some Korg mini log on it. So playing the line subtly, but also just holding one note that kind of builds. Yeah, pretty simple song, but mm. I think the way that we kind of got there is so interesting, so it's worth dismantling it because where else are we going to talk about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, except to yeah. our friends. I do love the journey of that song because even listening back to those demos, I still I love both of them. I love the acoustic guitar version of this song and I love that kind of middle drum machine version, but there's something extra kind of special about pulling this song apart mm -hmm. and playing it in that simplest kind of form. Mm. It really... I don't know, you listen to the lyrics more or it soaks into you more, I think. Yeah, I didn't really, I don't know if I felt that emotion wasn't as stirred for me when I heard different versions of that song, especially the more kind of produced version, which was closer to our our demo, which had that more kind of more complicated beat and different kind of groove and a lot more guitars, a lot more layers and, mm. and yeah, just a lot thicker, richer sound. I wasn't really listening to what Courtney was saying and in that kind of stripped down version, it felt so emotional, you know, in a way that I think it really, it is a very kind of bittersweet, melancholic song as well as being very beautiful and, and romantic in a way. And I hadn't heard the song, to be honest, till I heard that version that we ended up with. Really interesting. Really interesting to hear and see the process that you had to go through to, to get to that point, though, um, and mm. to shake it up enough to suddenly realise it. And and also interesting to know that you had that kind of nagging feeling, that both of you had a nagging feeling that you weren't getting there somehow, even mm, though yeah. you'd created all these great versions, you know, and, and mm. had some really nice parts and lots of different fine aspects to it. But, yeah, that nagging doubt in the back of your mind pushed you Almost to madness, but uh, <laughs> also turned helped you turn a corner to move around the room and, and swap instruments and try something yeah. completely different. Yeah, mm. yeah. Fantastic. I'm so glad we did that, and I'm just so I just can't stop listening to that drum part. It's so satisfying. <laughs> it really is my drum debut. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. So, Emma, um, we like to ask everybody the same two questions to see different people's takes. Um, one is equipment or tech. Is there a piece of equipment or a piece of technology that that you love to use or that you can't create without? Um, yeah, it's a funny thing because obviously guitar is kind of my, you know, my main instrument, but at the end of the day, it is a kind of tool for me, a crucial tool most of the time. And even from everything that we've just talked about, like, the song might not end up with the guitar on it, but most of the time it's pretty crucial in the process. So I, I guess for me that's, I mean, it's definitely there. And, you know, I wish I could say something um, more romantic than the voice memo app in my phone, <laughs> <laughs> like carrying around a little, uh, a little tape dictaphone. Um, but the reality is that my phone is always with me and, and I would just forget, I forget everything if I don't record it or write it down. Like 
Even if it's the greatest melody, the greatest song I've ever written, I will forget it the next day if I haven't um, made a copy of it. So, yeah. But I think, you know, over the last few years, the kind of the little drum machines have always helped me in my songwriting as well. Interesting. And is there a particular guitar that you always pick up or do you like to keep swapping around? I write a lot on my acoustic I have a a Maiden acoustic, which is a Australian brand, but I also have this little, like a kind of half size acoustic, and I, it goes out of tune really easily. And it's a little, it can be a little bit messy, but it, it's you know, I lay in bed with that guitar, and it's really easy to just kind of sit on the couch with it and not worry about it too much. Um, yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of last year with just like laying on top of my bed, looking out the window, playing guitar. Sounds like a dream life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Stella, I mean, you know, a producer has uh, a whole room full of trickery and gadgets, but do you have go-to things that say, you know, you've got a project coming up and you're thinking, right, I'm going to work with Courtney, I need to have this in my pocket, or or is it different every time? I think with most things I'll take some form of a drum machine, so... With this record, it was a lot of kind of processed old drum machine sounds through the analog rhythm, which is the electron drum machine. But, um, I mean, anything will work, like an MPC. There's a lot of MPC on the record as well. Just something that kind of helps establish a tempo and establish a rough groove so that everything's informed by that for the most part, for most songs. That seems to be like a really useful tool and something that if someone's writing mostly on guitar or on piano or kind of more melodic instruments, it's nice to just fill that gap immediately. So there's a kind of comfort and a direction. So I think, yeah, drum machines, things like the Roland TR-8S is great. And I'll take that to a lot of sessions, but yeah, for this record, it was just kind of using a wide variety of sounds, especially old sounds and, and knowing that Courtney was really into the, the ace tones and the CR8000, which she also owns, and kind of seeing what she gravitated towards naturally. Um, in terms of, I mean, just practicality, a pragmatic answer would be Ableton, you know, or anything to kind of capture something and workshop ideas. And it's a bit of a boring answer, but it is, you know, having a laptop with a great DAW and just being able to work pretty quickly and change the pitch of something or loop certain sections is just really helpful when you're, especially when you're working just with one other person. Yeah. I mean, we traveled around to a couple of different places with your kind of very simple setup and we set up a little home studio in about four or five different places. Yep. It was pretty much that drum machine or this CR8000, which Courtney owns, Ableton laptop and some KRK speakers and that was pretty much it and it was just really easy fits in a bag pretty much everything and you know you have your whole studio basically ready to go but I think the more romantic answer something that I feel like I I have not bought for myself but made it onto a lot of the record and kind of contributed to the more abstract interesting tones on the record was the Eventide H3000 or the Eventide 910, those kind of the dreamier, weirder processed sounds that just add a little bit of life to something that's otherwise very organic and very 
very straightforward. Just those, I love a magic machine, you know. You've got to have kind of one thing that kind of destroys or upsets the fabric of a song or a sound so you can kind of just layer that discomfort into a production. I think that kind of stuff is really important. Most producers I know, people or engineers just love, you know, one or two magic boxes that everything everything just sounds a little Mm. more alive once you start running a signal through it. But, yeah, yeah, those would be my three things. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and the other question we always ask people is about advice mm. and whether you have received or have learned words of wisdom that you would want to share or pass on to people. <laughs> I think the interesting, like one of the really interesting and exciting parts about working with Stella was just that a bit more of a kind of philosophical approach to music making and like the way that you kind of produce just a kind of gentler, a gentle approach. I think that my whole kind of philosophy with this album was everything I kind of learned how to slow down a little bit more and maybe believe in my capabilities. I think I've always, you know, on my last album, one of the choruses of my songs is, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know anything. Very kind of... um, (laughs) negative when I think about it, but, um, yeah, just like letting go of those ideas that we kind of carry about ourselves that kind of hold us back in certain ways and just kind of recognizing that, you know, that we all do have our own musical taste and opinions and we do know what we like and what we want. It's just about like finding the way there. And again, it's kind of things that I picked up from Stella in the making of this album was just that belief in that journey. And like we talked about a few times tonight of not always just going straight there in the straight line. Sometimes you've got to take a bit of a zigzag to get to the final destination. And just like, I think it's a constant reminder for me that that is a acceptable and probably wonderful, mysterious thing. <laughs> Fascinating. And Stella, do you have any things or thoughts that you hold dear or instruct your life in any way or musical life? I think like there's two things that come to mind. They're both like pretty simple, maybe even naive sentiments, but one would just be the kind of knowledge of how well you can perform in a studio or live or or even just writing a song or whatever task is at hand, whatever your role is musically or artistically, doing it in a relaxed way I think is so helpful and I think a lot of people have been, myself included, trained to feed off anxiety sometimes in a creative environment or in a productive environment where you have to generate something and you can't slow down and actually find, listen to what it is that you want to be doing. And I have to remind myself this all the time. I'm definitely not an expert, but it's something that I, it's like meditating. You know, you can sit for a week straight and have varying results every single day, even though you have the same mind and you have the same disposition for the most part. And you're essentially, you should be getting better at this one task, but you could be getting further away, you know, based on all the variables in a particular day and just kind of coming back to that center wherever that's possible 
and knowing that kind of, I mean, unfortunately, if you're feeling anxious, it can be, you know, a kind of horrible feedback loop. But for the most part, making music from a, a relaxed perspective and a relaxed frame of mind is so much more pleasant. And you can really kind of tune into more of the subtleties of, of the creative process. And for lack of a better word, this is very Californian, but flow. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's a better way of putting it, but just knowing that you're, you're in a comfortable, relaxed frame of mind when you're making something and, and trying your hardest to get there and not stressing yourself out and getting out of your own way and those kind of things. And then the other is like a pretty short but interesting and useful saying that a friend of mine had when I was trying to figure out, I had like two paths, you know, one was kind of playing with this band, which ended up being war paint and, you know, living between like the session world and, and the band world, which can be quite different, I think, in terms of your financial happiness and your financial strength and things like that. And my friend just said, never go for the fast nickel, always go for the long dime. And it's a weird analogy because it actually involves money in a way, but I think that there's a deeper truth to that. And it's, you know, waiting for something that's ultimately more satisfying and more nourishing to you mm. and not necessarily going for the first opportunity out of stress because it might not be what you want to do at all but you feel like you have to do it sometimes because maybe someone's not going to ask you again or whatever it is but yeah I think sticking to your guns in that way and and relaxing and building something that is more satisfying to you and more nourishing to you I think is something that's helped me along the way yeah and I think Mm. that's going to help a lot of other people as well Good. I'm already going to write it down immediately. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and the phrase, the long dime. Yeah, I like that. Um, yep. Sounds like a good bar as well. Uh, <laughs> it's a good bar, a good bumper sticker actually now. Maybe yeah. a bit too long, but not bad. We'll think about it. Merch ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us today. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating, really, really enjoyable. Um, and for sharing all those different intimate demos and and moments yeah thank you so much um we're gonna play out with one more song from the album and it was a song that we were thinking of examining but um you know there's only so much time um if i don't hear from you tonight is that song what can you tell us about this before we play it out i would say i will say that it is one of only three well four technically guest appearances on the record two of them are bones and dave from Courtney's band singing on um, Take It Day by Day, mm-hmm. Leticia from Vagabond on Oh The Night. And this is the fantastic and very talented and secret assassin bass player, Kate LeBon, playing bass on this song remotely. Excellent. So we'll play that. And thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. A real pleasure. That was really fun. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So this is it. If I don't hear from you tonight. Stars in the sky are gonna die Eventually it's fine Just like a lonely satellite Drifting for a little while If I don't hear from you tonight If I don't hear from you tonight 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.